continuing our series this morning through um, many of the Psalms in, in book one of the Psalms. And this morning we come to Psalm 13. You know, we sing songs like we just sang. Uh, we sing about a joyous time and we celebrate that, behold, Christ is coming. And yet we live in the already but not yet. Christ has not come yet. Christ has been raised, but we're awaiting his return. And we can celebrate with anticipation and we can sing songs of joy. Uh, but unfortunately, sometimes I think as as the church, uh, we are maybe sometimes fake in the way that we do that, right? Because life is not always joyous. You don't always feel like uh, clapping your hands as if Christ is about ready to, to break onto the scene. We sing songs, some older songs, hymns I remember singing growing up, and, and I'm not sure, uh, they might be okay for certain seasons of life, but I'm not sure that they're accurate depictions of, of all of life. We sing sunshine, sunshine in my soul today, sunshine, sunshine all along the way. Since my Savior found me and took away my sins, I have had the sunlight of his love within. Uh, and there is truth to that in one sense. There is a joy in being a Christian. There is a delight. And there's a joy and there's a peace that passes all understanding. And yet sometimes life is hard, right? Sometimes you don't feel like singing and shouting about joy. You, you, you don't have joy in your heart. Sometimes our, our church life, our prayers, and our songs that we sing are sort of sterilized. And, and it's hard for a person with a heavy heart. It's hard for a person entering into our worship services to really feel at home because they're going through some great trial, some great suffering, and, and we're singing, hey, Behold the days of Elijah. Look, Jesus is getting ready to come back and we're, we're joyous. Look, there's nothing wrong with, with being joyous, but I'm just saying sometimes the Christian life is a balance. We get this morning in this psalm a balance to what it means to be following the Lord, a balance to what it means to be following Christ. It is, always, it is not always a time of joy. To be sure, it is not always doom and gloom. Some people and some communities uh, act in that way, right? We, we just always walk around with a sour look on our face, and, and that shouldn't be either. Uh, there is a balance. There are times when the Lord is blessing, and there is great joy, and there are times when the Lord seems distant, and life is difficult, uh, and this psalm depicts that. It is a psalm of David, and you notice right away it says it is to the choir master, and I think that's instructive for us. That means that it, this was a psalm that was used in their hymnal. This was a song that they would sing. Uh, so not all of their songs were about joy and happy days. Listen to this Psalm 13, verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider me and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord 
because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is a psalm that they would use in their worship, and it is a depiction of times when God seems distant. And, and nevertheless, uh, it is an expression of faith. It's, it's a realist view of faith. It's not a fake or a cheap view of faith in which sometimes you see this with TV preachers. Everything's always happy and great. And if you follow the Lord, he'll bless you. You have a large bank account and nothing can stand against you and no problems will come against you. If you simply have enough faith, everything will go well. And this psalm and David say, wait a minute, that's not the full story. It's a realist view of faith. And yet we see nevertheless that it is a depiction of faith. It is not non-faith. It is not unbelief. It is faith in the midst of despair, but it is faith. It is faith when things are not going well with your soul, but it is faith. It is faith when you don't seem to have good reasons for it, but it is nevertheless faith. It is faith when there's a lump in your throat and a sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach, but it is faith. It is faith when all you want to do is cry and wonder why God didn't or doesn't answer. But as you find yourself crying, you are instinctively crying out to God. It's the faith that is uh, expressed by the Apostle Peter, who when the Lord began to teach some very difficult things, uh, our Savior uh, asked his disciples as other people began to leave and say, okay, we're not following Christ anymore. Uh, Jesus turned to the twelve and said to them, are you going to go also, and Peter says, uh, in response to that, uh, to whom will we go? This is difficult. Sometimes it's hard following Christ. Sometimes the Lord brings unkind providence into our lives. Uh, but yet at the end of the day, for the child of God, they are a person who continues to pursue the Lord, continues to follow the Lord, because where else will we go? It is a prayer after all. It is a prayer that is venting frustration, that is speaking to how David's heart is feeling emotionally, and yet it is a prayer to God. A prayer is an expression of faith in itself. Ralph Davis says this, it may not seem rational, that is this psalm, praying to God, a God who he says has forgotten him, a God who has hidden his face from him. It may not seem rational, but it is revealing there may be times when faith does not have its reasons, but it has its reactions. Even when Yahweh seems to turn a deaf ear to us, a believer will simply keep coming back to him. Here in the pit may be the clearest evidence that true faith dwells in you. Another person said this, Alistair Begg said this, he said, this kind of cry is not the absence of faith, but it is the expression of of faith. Well, in this psalm, unlike last week, we looked at Psalm 34, there was an inscription that kind of gave us the setting for that psalm. And this psalm doesn't have that. And yet, uh, as we read it, we, we can think it is, it does say that it is a psalm of David. And we can think to a couple different times in David's life in which a psalm like this might have been written. Perhaps some have suggested it was early on in his life when he's on the run from Saul and, and he feels despair. There was another time in his life, though, when he was on the run from his own son, Absalom. And, and to me, it seems more fitting with, with that. Early on, David had hope. 
I mean, when, when he's running from Saul, that was difficult. But at the same time, God had promised he was going to make him king. God had promised that he was going to take care of him and, and, and things would be well. And, and he had seen the provision of God. And so I, I think he was a bit more hopeful at that point in his life. And now this is just an educated guess. But to me, later in his life, he had already been king. He had already been ruling in uh, Jerusalem and, and had some victories. It was later in his life. And his son rebelled against him and tried to steal the kingdom from him. And that seems more fitting for this kind of psalm. It's a psalm when, when you're coming later in life and it doesn't seem to have as much hope. Do you remember the story of, of Absalom? Absalom uh, was David's son. David loved his son, right? Uh, but Absalom was not a good person. Uh, he had hopes of being the king and, and he didn't even want to wait until David died to become king. So for four years, he, he got a chariot, he gathered a group of men, an entourage for himself, and he stood at the gates and people would come to uh, speak to David and to voice their complaints and to get a ruling from the king. And Absalom would meet them there and he would say to them, you know what, man, it's a shame that my father, the king, has not appointed anyone to hear your complaints. You know, you sound like you've got a good point. It sounds like you're right, man. If I was king or or if there was someone who could hear your complaint, that they could rule on this and, and they would do right by you. For four years, Absalom did that. And finally, at the end of that, he knew the time was right. But the, the book of Second Samuel tells us that he had stolen the hearts of the men of Israel. They loved Absalom. Man, we need a leader like Absalom. If Absalom was a leader, he would... He would listen to our complaints and, and he would take us seriously. So Absalom spreads word secretly that he's going to, to rebel against David. He's going to be the next king. Uh, and, and the people of Israel seem to go along with it. The elders and the, the other rulers of the nation of Israel, they, they follow Absalom because their hearts have been stolen by him. And David, in a hurry, with fearing his life at, at this point, has to flee from Jerusalem. He has to flee from uh, the house that he has built, the home that he has known, and he is, he's been overthrown by his own son. And now he's fearful for his life, and he's, he's on his way out. At, uh, the book of 2 Samuel tells us, and, and I think it's analogous to, to Christ, he goes up to the Mount of Olives, and he's, he, he's, he's uh, got a, a headdress on his head. He's, he's mourning, and he's not wearing shoes. He's as he goes out to the Mount of Olives. And then you remember the, uh, the, the incident with Shimei who comes to him and is cursing him on his way out. Here is, here is the king, David, who had just been ruling. And now you've got this little bitty nobody coming up to him and cursing him. This is what you get. This is what you deserve on his way out. In shame, being, being scorned. And I could see David pinning these words at that moment, at the, the moment when God, where, where are you? What, this doesn't fit, right? I knew, I knew that if I was going to be king, I'd have to withstand Saul, and that made sense, and, and that fit together. But then I've become king now, and I've been, I've been ruling now for these several years, and, and I've got children, and, I, and my kingdom's been established. I've been worshiping and serving you. This doesn't fit with the pattern of, of how I saw the rest of my life going. Is my own son going to kill me? What, what is happening here? God, have you forgotten me? Have you hidden your face from me? So this psalm is a psalm of faith. It is an expression of faith, but it's an expression of faith 
in the midst of adversity, when things are not going well. As far as the structure to this psalm, there are three strophes or three stanzas in this, each of them two verses, verses 1 and 2, verses 3 and 4, and then verses 4 and 5, and we'll look at them in order. The first, uh, verses 1 and 2, we see the plight of faith. Uh, verses 3 and 4, then we see the prayer of faith. And verses 5 and 6, we see the praise of faith. So first of all, the, the plight of faith. The, the first thing that David does is just on, a, on an emotional level express how he feels. And now, uh, uh, for many of us men, we don't, we don't like to think in those terms. We want the bare facts. But David here is expressing his emotion and his feeling. And what it feels like to David is that God has forgotten him, that he has hidden his face from him, He's sad within his own being, and, and his enemy is ascending. His enemy has taken, uh, has taken over. We see here then the absence of God, the anxiety of, the, of David's soul, and the ascendancy of his enemy. Look at, first of all, the absence of God. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? David feels as if God has forgotten him in this moment, as if God is hiding his face from him. Now, this means a couple things. First of all, uh, this idea of forgetting or, or hiding his face to, to have God's face face is to have God's presence. It is it is to have fellowship. It, it is more than that. It is to enjoy God's blessing, uh, his protection, his help and his salvation throughout the Psalms. David longed for the face of God. He longed for the presence of God because God's presence, God's face, uh, having God's face turned to you was a sign that God was with you, that he was blessing you, that he was protecting you. So just think back last week, right, to Psalm 34, what David said, the eyes of the Lord, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ear toward their cry. But he goes on to say that the face of the Lord is against the wicked. It, he's, he's against them. So to have God's face is to have his presence, have to have his help. And this is part of David's lament. He's saying that God has forgotten him, that God is not blessing him, that God is not helping him, that he's in the midst of this trouble uh, when he needs help the most and God seems to be who knows where. Where, where is he? He's not, he's not here. He's not helping me. He's not blessing me. Absalom has overthrown me. Where is God's help in this moment? That's the way that David feels, secondly, not only to have God's help, but also to have God's presence, to have fellowship with God. David feels, in this psalm, David feels abandoned by God. God, you've simply left me. You have forgotten me. One person says this, no doubt the divine forgetting and hiding the face meant the withholding of practical help. We've just seen that. that there was this idea of blessing, and, and that blessing is not there. But the real hurt of it, he says, is personal. If we, must, if we may judge from David's constant longing to behold the face of God. God is not present. He is not there. David, David wanted to know God's presence. David, uh, David uh, to God, David, or to David, God was as a friend. And he longed to be with him. He longed to know him and to experience his presence presence 
Listen to Psalm 17, 15. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. If, if you are with me, if I can see your face, Lord, I'll be satisfied. Or Psalm 27, 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. And then verse 8, he says, you have said, seek my face. That is, seek my presence. Seek fellowship with me. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. David longed for the presence of the Lord. We all have friends, don't we? And, and, and sometimes the, the greatest comfort to our soul when, when we're going through something, when we're going through a trial or through a difficulty uh, it, it's not that our friends or our loved ones can really solve the problem for us. Uh, it's, it's not that they can just step in, maybe, maybe sometimes, but it's not as if most of the time they can just alleviate the, the problem. But what they can do is be present with you. I know in pastoral ministry classes, this is one of the things you learn. You go to the bedside of someone who's sick or you go to someone who is grieving. Uh, look, you, you can't heal their their loved one. You, you can't bring them back. There's not much that you can do to change the circumstance. But what you can do is to be there with them. And, and this is what David is saying. Lord, I'm in the middle of this crisis and I need your help. I need you to act. I need you to move. And you're not here. But, but more than that, I need your face and you've hidden it from me. I need your presence. I need your friendship. So sometimes David is saying, this was David's experience, I think this is true for all of us, sometimes David is saying here, it feels like God is not there when you need him the most. Sometimes for the believer, for the child of God, it feels as if God is not there when you need him the most. Can you believe that's in the Bible? Can you believe that that is part of Scripture? How are we to interpret this? How can we reconcile this with God's faithfulness, with his love and his care for us? How can we bring these two things together? Well, first of all, it's important to recognize that these are questions and not and not bold statements. This is not God, you have forgotten me forever. This is a question. Lord, I'm feeling this right now. It feels as if you've forgotten me. How long will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? They are questions and not and not statements. Secondly, we tend to focus on the bare facts. We tend to focus on, on uh, trying to make everything fit. But David here is simply expressing his emotions. The Psalms do not contradict the rest of Scripture. Yet many times they're written more from an emotional level uh, than, than from a dry, cold uh, perspective of, of just trying to, to make everything fit together. You see, David, when he's writing here, he's not sitting down and saying, well, well, how will the systematic theologies in a few thousand years from now, how will this how will they be able to fit this together with the goodness of God? Let me see. Let me be careful in the way that I choose my words here. Uh, David is is not worried uh, that he's going to be excommunicated by some church council who will find his statements here to be unorthodox. David here is giving us the gut reaction. He's telling us how he feels. And how does it feel for David right now? On his way out of Jerusalem or whatever is going on in his life, how does it feel for him? It feels as if God has forgotten him. 
It feels as if he needs the Lord right now and the Lord is not there. He's hiding his face from him. Now we know, right? The Lord forgets nothing. The Lord knows everything. Listen to another psalm that is written. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, oh Lord, you know it all together. The Lord doesn't forget anything. And he especially does not forget his children. And the Lord is good. Or think about what Jesus himself taught us. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? There's really not much value there. And he says, "And and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. The, The psalmist knows this. David knows this to be reality. And yet he's speaking from Simply an emotional level. Lord, this is, this is what I feel right now in the midst of this storm, in the midst of this suffering. I feel as if you have forgotten me, as if I need you, and you're hiding your face from my problems. There was another person in the Bible who experienced this, Job, and he expressed very much the same thing in Job 23, verse 2. He says, Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that is God, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say. You see, part of the story of Job is not just that Job suffered, but that Job suffered in the silence of God. Job is there. He, he can undergo suffering. He, he can endure loss. But he needs to know where God is in the midst of this. He, he desires to have an explanation from the Lord. And if only I knew what is going on. I know that I've been righteous. I know that I've done right. If only God would explain to me. If only God would speak to me. If I could talk to him, then I would know what's going on. And yet God was silent for a time. In Job 30, verse 19, he says, God has cast me into the mire. I have become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. David, in this psalm, is dealing with the same thing. He's dealing with the absence of God. But secondly, part of David's plight, or the plight of faith, is the anxiety of soul, of his soul. You see in verse 2, How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? You see, what happens when we begin to go through these times, we become very introspective, don't we? We begin to plot and plan. How can I get out of this? How can I deal with this? How can I alleviate this this problem? We, We make plans and we think about possible solutions, but sometimes nothing seems to bring a remedy to our suffering. And that is what David is asking. How long, Lord, must I take counsel in my soul? How long am I going to have to sit here and try to plan and scheme and and try to get out of this and yet not hear from you, not have direction, not have guidance, not have your blessing? How long uh, will I have to do this? You know, sometimes no matter how much scheming and how much planning you do, it's all futile apart from the blessing of God. It's as the poet Robert Burns said, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. Or as 
The great philosopher Mike Tyson said, everyone's got a plan till they get punched in the face. Uh, I, I kind of like the second one there. Uh, you know, everybody's got a plan about how they can get out of this or how they can deal. But, you know, sometimes when life is punching you in the face, your plans just don't work. They don't seem to accomplish. Proverbs 16, 9 says, The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his step. And you can do all the planning that you want, all the scheming that you want, but apart from God's blessing, and when God's blessing is absent, there is no point. It is futile. And David's wrestling with that. And he says, because of this, I have sorrow in my heart all day long. You ever go through that? You ever go to bed and finally you're able to fall asleep and you wake up the next morning and for about 10 seconds you're able to forget what's going on in your life and then it, and then it just hits you again. There it is again. Oh yeah, that's going on. I'm dealing with, with that all day long. Sleep is the only alleviation you get from the sorrow and from the pain. In verse 2, that's what David says that he is experiencing. So he has the absence of God, the anxiety of soul, and then, then the ascendancy of the enemy. How long, verse 2, shall my enemy be exalted over me? Now, who is this enemy? Again, we don't know exactly the setting of this. Perhaps Saul, perhaps Absalom, maybe someone else. But one important thing to see about uh, the enemy in the Psalms, which the enemy is mentioned very often, uh, is that David stands as a re representative of God's kingdom. He is God's king. And so ultimately, this is not just some personal enemy. Uh, this is not some individual enemy that David has. It's not merely a, a personal or individual enemy. It is uh, a spiritual enemy in the greatest sense. It is an enemy of God as much as it's an enemy of David. The, the attack on David doesn't just represent an attack on, on David. It, it, it expresses or it, it pictures an attack on God's kingdom itself, on God and on God's plan. And this is the enemy. As, as we interpret these psalms then, uh, we don't think about the, the person that we just don't get along with at work. That's, that's not the enemy. Uh, Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. So as we apply this as, uh, to ourselves, we, we can see that our enemy is much more spiritual than he is Physical. Now, Satan has people that, that do his bidding, that, that are led by the prince of the power of the air, and yet we need to see the ultimate enemy behind all of that is, is Satan. And how does Satan come against us? Sometimes through suffering. We see that God allows suffering, as in the case of Job, but, but the instrument in bringing that about, the direct agent of that suffering is Satan and not God himself. And so it is in our life. Sometimes it's temptation. Sometimes... Uh, it is the work of Satan in seeking to overthrow righteousness uh, in, in our lives. And for right now, David says, it seems as if the enemy's exalted over me. Uh, are you ever there? Are you ever at the point where you just feel like the enemy is, is gaining victory? And you're crying out to God, how long is this going to go on? How long is this temptation just going to own me? How, how long am I going to have to suffer through this trial? How long am I going to try, to try to take a stand for righteousness and people are going to oppose it? How long, oh Lord? And that is part of the, 
the issue here as well. What, what complicates all of this is the prolonged nature of this trial. These first two verses, we get the fourfold repetition of this question. How long? It isn't just that David's going through a trial or, or that things are difficult for a season. It seems like it's never ending. How long? How long? How long, O oh Lord? How long? The, the prolonged nature of this is what makes it even more difficult. Matthew Henry says that long afflictions try our patience and often tire it. It is a, con- a common temptation when trouble lasts long to think that it will last always. Another person says it this way, God's time of deliverance is commonly further off than man's ignorance thinks best. Yet it is often nearer than man's unbelief allows him to hope. And so this is David's problem. The absence of God, the anxiety of his soul, the ascendancy of his enemy, and all of it's complicated by the fact that it's going on and on and on. And he doesn't seem to have an answer. And we would ask the question, and David would ask the question with us this morning, why does God work in this way? A couple of answers to this. First of all, if we just begin very quickly with the idea of justice, we deserve nothing from God. Every blessing that we get is a blessing of grace. And so if we have that mindset, uh, when we go through suffering, uh, we, we, we would think nothing of it. But, but secondly, from, this is the bigger question. From the idea of God's wisdom and the idea of God's goodness, how can God be wise and let me go through this? And let this prolonged suffering and trial go on in my life. How can God be good? We talk about the goodness of God. How can God be good and do nothing when I'm going through this trial? Does God have a good reason for keeping silent? Doesn't it seem like sometimes you're just sinking in the midst of a trial? Like the the water's going to overcome you and there's, there's no one there to lift you out of the water? Why would God do that? Well, I'll tell you a, a, a quick story. Uh, we went to, to crossing. I used Brandon this morning and as an analogy or a, a story for Sunday school. I'll, I'll do it again here. Uh, we, we went to crossings camp, right? And they have a lake there. Kids have swim time every, every day. It was kind of embarrassing, though, because I, I had to take Brandon out. He's never learned how to swim, so I, I had to kind of carry him around the lake. And, and people would say, oh, there's, there's Brandon and his dad, right? You're all looking at me. That, that's a joke. Uh, that didn't happen. And, and the reason that didn't happen is that when Brandon was uh, about four or five years old, uh, there was a pool. We were living in an apartment at the time. There was a pool there. And I, I took Brandon out there and kind of let him get familiar, get him comfortable with the water. And, and over time, though, you've you got to eventually let go, right? You've you got to put him out there. And you begin to feel like you're going to sink. But, but when you do, they start kicking their feet and paddling their arms. And they... They learn how to swim. But it but it's only comes at the end of this process in which it feels like to the child, right, that you've, you've let go of me and I'm sinking in this water. Why would you do that, Dad? Uh, and I've had to do this with, with all my children. They, they all learn to swim. If you want to learn to swim at a certain point, you can hold them and hold them and hold them. But if you never let go, they don't learn how to swim. And so God... It's part of the answer, why, why God? Why would you do this? God is teaching us to swim in the pool of faith. And until he lets go, until we learn to walk by faith and not by sight, as the Apostle Paul tells us, we will not learn this great lesson 
of faith. Our, our faith is strengthened and, and, and made greater when we go through these times of trials. That's what David's doing in our lives. That is what David or what the Lord was doing with Job. And that is what God does with us as well. Now, a good father, I would never let my children drown, right? If I have anything to say about it, if I have any ability to keep them from drowning, I would never let them drown. And so the Lord, though He may let go of us for a while, though, though He may put us in the pool and, and teach us to swim in the pool of faith, He's never going to let us go, right? He's, he's, he's never going to allow us to sink and, and, and drown. He is a, a good Father, and yet this is what is required to learn Faith. One person said, said this, that is good for us, which leads us to pray. We think about even this psalm as a, a prayer. It is David crying out to the Lord, seeking the Lord with, with a great fervency. It, it is an expression of faith. It's, it's, it's a trial that has led David to seek the Lord. And he says that is good for us, which leads us to pray. It's better to be praying in the whale's belly than asleep in the ship. And that, of course, is from the life of Jonah. And we would ask ourselves, when was Jonah better off? Was, was Jonah better off when he was asleep in the ship? And this, this guy's saying, no. He was better off in the, the belly of a whale, in the belly of a great fish, than he was in, in asleep in the ship. Because when he was asleep in the ship, he was running away from the Lord. And when he was in the whale, uh, the belly of the whale, he was seeking the Lord and crying out to the Lord. And this may help us intellectually kind of deal with the problem from an intellectual standpoint. But David is not dealing with it from an intellectual standpoint. He's dealing from it uh, with it from a, an emotional standpoint. Don't you think that David, this great author of Scripture, the one that spoke so eloquently in other places about God's goodness and about God's faithfulness, don't you know that he knew that God was good? And yet he's saying for a time right now, Lord, it feels like you have forgotten me. And I think we can all, from time to time, identify with this plight of faith. But what do you do then? When you're in those moments, when you are suffering, and that is the question for us, is it not? Trials will do one of two things in your life. Trials will either push you away from the Lord, or they will, if you are God's child, they will draw you to the Lord. And that's what David does. David praise to the Lord. What do you do when you're in the midst and it feels like God is not answering, God is not listening, God has forgotten you, He's hidden your face. What do you do? You come back one more time. You pray one more time. You cry out to God one more time. And that's what David does. Here we got a, a, a threefold uh, request. He says, consider and answer me. O Lord my God, light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. So consider me. Answer me and light up my eyes. And, and each of these requests sort of answers the problem that he was going through. So there was the absence of God and he says, listen, Lord, consider me and answer me. And then there's the, the anxiety of, of the soul. And he says, light up my eyes. And this can mean one of two things. First of all, Lord, I'm so weary. Sometimes you can just see tiredness in people's eyes. And he's saying, give me the strength I need to endure this. Light up my eyes. Or, or perhaps he's asking for light. Light uh, is wisdom. Lord, I don't know. I'm making plans. I'm taking counsel in my heart. Lord, I need you to light up my eyes. Give me guidance and direction in the middle of this turmoil. Either one of those makes sense. 
And then the ascendancy of the enemy. He says, lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. And lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. This idea of shaken, it really means more than shaken. It it means to slip and fall. And the the picture of this word that is, is used is the idea that you're bearing this load. You're carrying a heavy load and it just becomes too much. And you fall under the weight of that load. And he's praying, Lord, deliver me, answer me, light up my eyes, help me, Lord. Unless my enemies say, aha, he's fallen under the weight of this. And so David expresses a childlike faith to the Lord. You know, it's, it's in the nature of children, isn't it? To keep asking. Those of you that have children or, or that have children at home, especially you, you know this, right? They just keep asking. They don't stop. They keep coming back over and over again. No matter how many times you say no, no matter how much you indicate to them that that, that is not going to happen, they just keep coming back. And perhaps that's sinful, so that might not be the best illustration. But this is what David does. Lord, I don't like Peter. I don't have anywhere else to go. Uh, You're not answering, you're not helping, you're not delivering me, and yet I'm just going to keep coming back. Consider me, Lord, answer me. This is what a person of faith does in the midst of a trial. The person who is not a child of God runs the other way. They stop coming to church, they say, I went through some stuff and I just don't want to have anything else to do with this. But the the person who is a person of faith, a child of God, a, a true believer, one who has true faith, keeps coming back. They keep crying out to the Lord. I don't have anywhere else to go. My faith is in you. If you don't answer, Lord, I have no hope. And so David prays to the Lord. Then we see not only the plight of faith, the prayer of faith, but we see thirdly the the praise of faith. This is an amazing statement. At the end of this, after we consider the first four verses, and then you read this, you just say, this doesn't even fit. He says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is an amazing expression of David's faith. How could David, in the light of everything that we've seen in these verses, how can he say, I'll praise you, you've you've dealt bountifully. I'll rejoice in your steadfast love. How can David do that? Well, I think what David is doing here, what this psalm is doing for us, is anticipating what he knows is going to happen. What faith has taught him, what his experience with the Lord has taught him, is that the Lord always comes through for His children. It may seem as if He's forgotten. It may seem for a time as if He's hidden His face. But the Lord always answers His children. And so he's anticipating this future circumstance in which he will be able to praise the Lord as he's done in times past. He's been through trials before. He's been through times when when the days were dark and it was gloomy and doomy and he's seen God work and he's anticipating that God is going to do that again. It's not happening right now. He seems distant. He seems far away. But the Lord will answer. And when that happens, and I'm confident that it will, I will praise the Lord. Because he will have dealt bountifully with me. What is David basing this confidence on? It's on the character of God. Notice here that, uh, as we said earlier in in another sermon about the Psalms here, we we notice that the person that that David is praying to in verse 6 is the Lord. 
There, it's all capitals. Do you see that? I will sing to the Lord. This is God's covenant name. This is Yahweh, or as we sing, sometimes it's pronounced Jehovah. Uh, but the Hebrew pronunciation, Yahweh. This is God's personal name that He gave to Moses when He gave Moses His covenant. In other words, uh, this, this, is, this is a personal relationship. I know this God. I know who He is. And I know the covenant that He has made with His people, with His children, that He has made a promise to protect them and to care for them. And so I'm crying out to you, Yahweh, covenant God. He's basing it on the character of God. But look what He says in verse 5. I have trusted in your steadfast love. I think that's a great translation. This is the word has said. The Hebrew word has said. And this translation, I think, is about the best that you can do. In the King James, it's often translated mercy. Uh, in, other, in other translations, it might be translated loving kindness. It's the idea of love, simply put. It's, it's love. But there's a couple things that are unique about this kind of love. First of all, it's an unexpected, undeserved love. It's a love that we don't merit or earn. It's, it's unexpected. But more importantly for our purposes here, it, it is a love that's a covenant kind of love. It's the kind of love that a man has for a woman when they stay married 60 or 65 years. Now that's love, we say. Look, look at the commitment. Look at the fidelity. And, and they're struggling. They're going, through, they're going through various trials, but they're sticking together. That's love. That's what love looks like. That's the kind of love that he's talking about here. It's a covenant, faithful, loyal kind of love. It's the kind of love that's not leaving uh, in a year from now. It's not going anywhere. It's, it's faithful. And he says, David says in verse 5, I've trusted in your steadfast love. Your covenant, faithful love. How could David know that God would answer. In the moment, it doesn't look like God is even hearing him or even knows about his problem. How does David, how can he be so confident? He's basing it on the character of God. I know God. David knows something to be true. He knows that no matter how long trials go on and no matter how much it appears that God has forgotten us, he will never leave us or forsake us because he loves us. He will never abandon us. David wrote in another psalm, Psalm 16, he says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. David knew that although God might seem distant for a time and he might have to undergo some trials, that God would come through. He would not ultimately abandon him. You know, we relish great stories of faith, don't we? We, we think about Moses and, and standing toe-to-toe with Pharaoh. We, we think about Sarah and, and Abraham and what they underwent. We think about Job and Daniel and Paul being in prison and John. And we, th- we think those are great. But let me ask you some questions. Is Moses the only one who has to stand toe-to-toe with a great world imp- empire? Is Sarah the only one who is called to have faith even through years of childlessness? Is Job the only one who must undergo suffering and loss of all material goods? Is Daniel the only one that should be thrown in lion's dens and and into fiery furnaces and be expected to have faith in God in the midst of that? Is Paul the only one that should be in prison in a Roman jail cell and yet be able to praise the Lord? Is John the only one who should be exiled to an island and and be able to, to praise the Lord in that moment and continue to have faith? Is it right for us to celebrate their faith 
the faith of these great men and women in, in this adversity, but then say we want no part of that? Maybe a greater question is, is Jesus the only one who must endure affliction and suffering and go to the cross? Or as Thomas Shepard wrote in, in the hymn, must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? The answer that he gives to that is no, there's a cross for everyone and there's a cross for me. You see, we're called just like Job and just like Daniel and just like Paul and just like John. We're called to have faith in the midst of the storm. We're called to have faith even when things look bleak. God is teaching us and he's strengthening our faith and proving our faith in those moments. And just like Christ bore a cross, so he tells us to take up your cross Right. Take up your cross and follow me to follow Christ is to follow him with a cross as much as David had God's covenant faithfulness to, that he could bank on. Listen, uh, we, we can have assurance this morning, even greater than David had, that though we will bear the cross, though we may be thrown in the jail cell, though we, we may go to the fiery furnace or the lion's den, Though we may suffer in this life and God may seem distant at times in the middle of that, yet we have a greater covenant than even, than even David did. We have this covenant of, of Christ. We have a Savior who has come and God has shown us uh, that, he, that He is faithful to His children. I'm reminded of the words that Jared read this morning. They're actually words from a psalm, another psalm of, of David in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Those were words written by David in the Psalms, but they were words that were quoted by our Savior as He died on the cross. You see, there's a way that we know that God will not leave us and forsake us. And the reason that we can bank on that, and we can know that, is because Christ was forsaken on our behalf. You see, I, I talked about the fact that in justice, we really don't deserve anything from God. We deserve to be abandoned by God. And yet... He turned his face away from his son on the cross because his son was bearing our sins. And we can know, as Paul says, that if he spared not his own son to redeem us and deliver us, will he forget us forever? The answer to that is no. God will not forget his children. You see, God calls us to follow Christ in his suffering, but because our sins have been paid for, we can know for sure that God will not abandon our soul to hell or allow His Holy One to see corruption. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we come to You this morning and we come as people...